Good morning again. It's been one of those mornings where I think I've had every possible external and internal distraction. So I'm just going to say a prayer before we get into this message. Lord, thank you that you are with us and you are with me and you are in this scripture wanting to speak a word to this congregation. And I pray that I can deliver that faithfully. Amen. So it is springtime, summertime actually, and I am always amazed at the incredible variety of animals God has created. I hear an echo here. What can I do about that, guys? Anything I can do? How are we sounding? Is that better? Yeah? Okay. Yeah. We got this. When I, my husband and I go for walks in the morning, and recently we uh, saw a bird we've never seen before. He's got this bird identification app on his phone, which is a really fun thing for those of you who enjoy a little bird watching. Uh, but this morning I'm going to show you a picture of a different kind of animal. And so if we can get that first picture up there, guys. Uh, okay, this is a Nubian ibex. And it was photographed by Paul Matovich at the En Gedi Nature Reserve in Israel. And it kind of looks like a normal goat deer thing, right? But wrong. Next slide. These animals can basically walk up the side of cliffs, up and across the cliffs, hanging on by their toenails, so to speak. And of course, their predators like wolves and bears can't catch them up there, so it's actually a safe place for them to be. And for most animals, this would be impossible, right? Scaling that kind of a cliff in that way is uh, impossible, but not for the ibex. God created them with this special ability. Can we see the next slide? I'm showing you this because in our scripture reading today, as you've heard, there's a very famous verse about God enabling us to climb up to the heights like a deer. And since the scripture was written in about 600 BC, we don't know exactly what species of deer Habakkuk was referring to, but I like to think it was something like this, which they have in Israel. Something that seemed to defy gravity and that made everyone who saw it think, wow, how does it do that? So I want you to keep that image in mind as we uh, are going to read again from Habakkuk 3 in a moment. If you've been with us over the last three weeks since the beginning of June, then you know we've been doing a series through the book of Habakkuk. It's one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament, not minor meaning unimportant, but mining, minor meaning short. It's only three chapters long, and so I hope that all of you have read it. Well, in fact, you have over the last month because we've read it for you here in church. And so what we have learned so far from Habakkuk is that when we feel like we're in the dark and we don't understand what is happening in the world, what on earth is God doing, why does he allow certain things to happen, that it is okay to bring our questions and our doubts and even our complaints to God, as Habakkuk did. Habakkuk complains that God isn't doing anything about the violence and injustice that he sees in Israel. And God answers that he is doing something, but it isn't the something that Habakkuk wants. God is going to judge the nation of Israel by means of an even more wicked nation, the Babylonians. So Habakkuk complains again and says, God, this isn't fair. This isn't right. How can you tolerate such wicked people? 
And then God answers with an oracle of woe against the Babylonians. And he is assuring Habakkuk that their time will come and that they will be repaid for the evil that they have done. And so then Habakkuk prays, as Hannah preached last week, he prays this prayer of submission and faith. And he recounts God's mighty acts of salvation in the past, especially the exodus from Egypt. Um, And he anticipates that God is going to keep his promises in the future and his justice will prevail. So now, the end of the book, the conclusion of Habakkuk's prayer in chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. It's in the Bible in the pew in front of you or on your phone Bible app, and of course, we'll put it back on screen for you here. Uh, 3, starting at verse 16. I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights for the director of music on stringed instruments. And uh, uh, so, yeah, as Peter said, this was set to music. The congregation sang it as we just did. People prayed this prayer along with Habakkuk. But this is a really difficult prayer to pray, isn't it? It's kind of like singing, I surrender all. I have a love-hate relationship with that song. It's a wonderful song. But every time that I sing it, I feel a little bit like a fraud because I want to surrender all, but I know I haven't really. There are some things I want to keep, like my family and my job and my home. I would not be happy if God decided that he needed to take those things away. So I've theoretically surrendered them, but I've sort of got one hand on them still, right? (laughs) You know what I mean. But here... Habakkuk doesn't even have anything to surrender except for his questions and his doubts. He's got nothing. No crops, no livestock, no security, no visible hope for the future. All he has are the stories of miracles God did in the past. And he has God's word that justice is sometime going to be done in the future. Eventually. And somehow, that's enough for Habakkuk to not just endure in his circumstances, but actually rejoice in them. He's joyful in this situation. He's joyful even though he has nothing and he knows that even worse circumstances are coming. How? How is, how is he doing this? It seems impossible, like that Ibex I showed you standing on the side of the cliff. And so I want to learn from Habakkuk how he moved from the attitude he had in chapter 1 to the attitude he has here in chapter 3, even though nothing about his situation has changed. All the circumstances are the same. There's still evil and injustice being done all around him. His nation is still going to be destroyed for their sin, and he himself could be killed in that invasion. We don't know. God gives him no guarantee of personal protection. But somehow, he's moved from being frustrated and doubting God to rejoicing in God. And one Bible commentator says this, his circumstances hadn't changed, but he had changed. 
And now he was walking by faith instead of sight. He was living by promises, not explanations. How, though, right? How, how does he do this? How do we do this? Thankfully, these few verses at the end of Habakkuk tell us three specific things that Habakkuk did. Three ways that he responded after God answered his questions. And I think if we look a little more closely at his actions, then we'll be able to see how it was that Habakkuk was transformed. So the first thing that Habakkuk did in verse 16 is that he heard. Now, I don't just mean that, you know, the, the words, you know, affected his brain and he heard them, but he accepted them. He, he, belis- he believed, he listened, right? We, we might tell our kids that, you know, they've heard us, but they haven't listened like that, okay? He, he heard God. Verse 16 says, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. So this doesn't sound like a very pleasant process. Hearing from God, listening to God, and accepting his words are not always easy things to do. In the Bible, whenever someone has a direct encounter with God, um, they're affected physically. God's glory and his power are more than they can take. So in the Old Testament, we see Moses and Joshua and Isaiah and Daniel, many of the prophets who encounter God. They fall down or they tremble or they lose their strength for days. And even in the New Testament as well, when Peter, James, and John see Christ transfigured on the mountain before them, they fall face down and are terrified. In the last book of the Bible, in Revelation, John sees Jesus Christ in heaven and he falls down as though dead until Jesus touches him and gives him strength. So I think part of what's happening here is that Habakkuk has this physical reaction of being overwhelmed by the awesome presence of God. But I think he's also afraid of what God has said is going to happen. He believes God's word that judgment is coming and that his people are going to be attacked by a ruthless army and most of them will not survive. So he hears and he accepts that message, and it's scary. I wouldn't want to be told to expect a brutal attack on White Rock, um, and most of the people in the city are going to die. I would have some anxiety and a few sleepless nights after that, wouldn't you? And so I, I admire Habakkuk for his strength and for his humility and his sincerity and his vulnerability here. Because a lot of us have questions about why God is doing what he's doing in the world. A lot of us wonder what is up. But rarely do we actually come to God with those questions and sincerely seek an answer and try and listen to what he might say. Rather, we we brood over our questions. We wallow in our self-pity or we get cynical and bitter against God because we can't see any good. We stop trusting him. Or we might just stuff our questions down and ignore them because we don't think we'll get an answer anyways. But Habakkuk was humble enough to admit God might have a plan and might be doing something that he couldn't understand. And so he sincerely asked him about it with an open mind to hear whatever God would say. And when God explained the plan, he accepted it, even though it meant hardship and pain for him personally. So I think if to move from this place of doubt, where he was in chapter 1, to this place of rejoicing at the end of the book, we've, we've got to open our ears to be willing to hear from God. 
bring those questions to God, humbly listen to God's answer through the scriptures, accept what God says. And that's the first thing Habakkuk did. He heard God. And the second thing is that he waited. Patience is a virtue, we say. It's true. He said in verse 16, the second part, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. So he's basically saying, even though God's plan is scary, even though it's not what I wanted or prayed for, I'm going to wait quietly because he says justice will come. I'm not going to complain and question him anymore. I'm going to choose to trust him. Faith can't be separated from waiting. We're all waiting for God's promises in some way or another to be fulfilled. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, well, we acknowledge we're waiting for something, right? His kingdom has begun, and it's not yet been fully realized. His will is being done in some ways, but it's also being resisted by many forces. And so we've not yet experienced all that God has promised us, and we can be angsty and frustrated about that, or we can choose like Habakkuk, to wait patiently and see what God will do. In Hebrews 11, this great chapter on faith, it says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So faith is waiting for God with confidence in him. And then in Hebrews 11, it goes on and it lists a whole bunch of people who did this, who had faith. Some of these who did mighty miracles and had great successes, and others who were martyred and who suffered. And at the end of the chapter, after listing all these great heroes of faith, it says, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders, and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And so we can be encouraged by all those who went before us, including Habakkuk, that it is possible to wait patiently and live faithfully in any circumstances, whether pleasant or unpleasant. And Jesus is our prime example of that, of course, he suffered through the torture of the cross while he waited for the salvation that God had promised to bring to the whole world, that joy that he was promised. And he didn't see that joy until after he was resurrected. He didn't see it in his earthly life. And so Jesus showed us how to wait patiently, come what may. He prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And essentially, that is what Habakkuk prays here as well. He prays, I will wait patiently for your will to be done, for your plan to be realized. And so in, in chapter one, his attitude was, God hasn't helped us. But now his attitude is, God hasn't helped us yet. And that one word makes all the difference. Now it's a statement of faith. He believes God's help is coming. So without hearing God and then choosing to wait for God, it's impossible to rejoice in God during tough times because that's Habakkuk's third action in this passage. In response to God's word, he chooses to rejoice in God. And it is not an easy choice. 
His circumstances do not give him any reason for rejoicing, right? We've read it a couple of times. No figs, no grapes, no olives. The fields have no crops. There's no sheep. There's no cattle. We've got no food. But I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. So Habakkuk's saying, even if we starve, I will rejoice. And do you hear that iron in his voice, right? He is telling himself as much as he's telling us and the congregation who sang this, I will be joyful in God my Savior. And this is a true conviction. He's not going to let anything shake his trust and his joy in the Lord. And this is just amazing to me. I'm, I'm baffled, right? How can he call God his Savior when God hasn't saved him? God hasn't fixed his situation, and in fact, he's going to make it worse. And a few times in Scripture, we find mind-boggling statements of faith like this, where people choose to trust God whether he helps them or he doesn't. They're like that Nubian ibex, hanging off the side of the cliff, living by faith in ways that seem impossible to me, to the rest of us, to many of us. And we've already noted that most famous one when Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. Even if I'm crucified, I trust you, God. But then there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3. They're threatened with death if they don't worship an idol. And they say, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not... We want you to know, Majesty, that we will not serve your gods. So even if we burn to death, we will not betray God. We will trust him. And then there's Job. Job lost everything, his children, his livelihood, his health, his relationships. And he says about God, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Even if I die in pain with nothing, he's my hope. This is some kind of faith. This is unbelievable faith, and some might call it ridiculous faith. Job's wife did. Job's wife said in Job 2, verses 9 and 10, his wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. And he replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Well, most of us say yes. That's exactly what we say. When we're blessed, We thank God, we give him praise, we rejoice. And when we're suffering, we question God. We ask why, we ask him to fix it. And if he doesn't, we think he isn't good or maybe he doesn't exist at all. We abandon our faith so quickly. But these people that I've mentioned, they understood something that we don't. They understood that because of who God is, He's worthy of our praise no matter what happens to us. They had encountered the creator God whose plan for the universe is far beyond what any of us could ever hope to comprehend, whose power and love and goodness are infinite, and they understood he's trustworthy no matter what happens to me. And so this this is what we've got to try and wrap our minds around, and, and I haven't yet. I, I know what 
I can tell you what the answer is. I don't know if I can do it, okay? I'm in the same boat with all of you. But this is what we're trying to understand, is that our experiences and our feelings are not actually relevant in deciding whether or not God should be praised. I am who I am is always worthy of praise. So these people, they made a commitment to God for better or for worse, and for Habakkuk, it was for worse. So be it, he said. He still chose to rejoice in God. And he wasn't rejoicing about his circumstances because they were terrible. He said, I'll rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God. And so back in chapter one, in Habakkuk's uh, second complaint, um, he described the Babylonians as people who had rejoiced in idols of their own creation. In verse, uh, chapter one, verse 16, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet, for by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. So we tend to worship whatever or whoever benefits us the most. But as Christians, we're called to a higher form of worship. The trials and the difficulties that we go through can actually purify our worship so that we're worshiping God for who he is and not just what he does for us. It's good to say thank you for the blessings we receive. Absolutely. We need to thank God for good things in our lives. But if that's all we ever do in worship, then we're missing the biggest part of the point, right? Can we rejoice in God himself and not just in his blessings? That's what Habakkuk shows us how to do here. In the New Testament, in James chapter 1, that's a letter to the early Jewish Christians, James gave another reason to rejoice in difficult circumstances. He says it like this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I often marvel at those verses, too. How are we supposed to consider it pure joy to go through difficult and stressful and painful experiences? James says we can rejoice not only because God is still God, he's still worthy, but also because our trials are going to serve to make us mature in our faith, more like Jesus Christ himself. And so when we face something unpleasant, trials of many kinds, whatever those are, James says to consider that good news. Hooray, suffering. <laughs> Another opportunity to become more like Jesus. That sounds nuts, right? I know. This is only gonna work if we really love Jesus. If we really wanna be like him and full of love and patience and integrity and holiness, we wanna be just like him. It's not gonna be possible to consider our trials, pure joy, if all we have is a head knowledge of God, we know some things about God, or you know, we, we go to church, we read our Bible, we've, we've got the, that intellectual belief that yes, Jesus was God's son, that's not, gonna, that's, not gonna cut it. that's not gonna cut it. We have to really be in love with Jesus to be able to welcome and rejoice anything that's gonna make us more like him. The Apostle Paul was able to do this. He said, I want to know Christ 
Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. He wanted to know Christ and be in Christ and be filled with Christ so badly that he even wanted to participate in his sufferings and become like him in his death. So I don't think Paul was a masochist. He didn't enjoy suffering for its own sake, but he was happy to suffer if it meant that it would make him like Jesus and that he could share in Jesus' joy and Jesus' resurrection. So, wow. I cannot tell you, honestly, that I want that yet. But I want to want that kind of faith. I'm, I'm down in the valley looking up at the Nubian ibex on the cliffs and saying, I need that kind of faith. That's the kind of faith, that, that's the goal for all of us. But God has to do that work in us. And we've got to ask him for it. The last verse of Habakkuk says, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. And did you know King David said nearly the same thing in Psalm 18? Uh, it is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. So we're never going to muster up this kind of faith on our own, the kind that rejoices in God even when everything hurts, the kind that can see the light of God's glory with our eyes of faith even when everything around us is dark. God has to make us like that. He's got to enable us, to cause us to stand on the heights, and it will probably take some pain in our lives for him to accomplish that. But don't you think the view from there is going to be awesome? Imagine what we're missing out on down here in the valley of tired, weak faith. So the book of Habakkuk, it's not really about Habakkuk, it's about God. It's the story of how God moved someone from this valley of doubt and complaining to the heights of faith. And all Habakkuk did was respond to God's actions. He heard, and he waited, and he chose joy. And so you may feel like it's impossible, I may feel like it's impossible to have the kind of faith that he had, but with God, nothing is impossible. And so I'd like to end with a story that's going to lead us into our closing song. Uh, in June of 2017, the Tabernacle Choir performed the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, and there was an introduction by Lloyd Newell, and he told the story of how and when this hymn was written. And I think this fits perfectly with our message today. Uh, Horatio Spafford was the author of the hymn, It Is Well. And he's another Nubian Ibex up on those heights of faith that he can inspire us. So here's the story as told by Mr. Newell. Horatio Spafford knew something about life's unexpected challenges. He was a successful attorney and real estate investor who lost a fortune in the great Chicago fire of 1871. Around the same time, his beloved four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. Thinking a vacation would do his family some good, he sent his wife and four daughters on a trip to England, planning to join them after he finished some pressing business at home. However, while crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship was involved in a terrible collision and sank. 
More than 200 people lost their lives, including all four of Horatio Spafford's precious daughters. His wife, Anna, survived the tragedy. Upon arriving in England, she sent a telegram to her husband that began, Saved alone, what shall I do? Horatio immediately set sail for England, and at one point during the voyage, the captain of the ship, aware of the tragedy that had struck the Spafford family, summoned Horatio to tell him that they were now passing over the very spot where the shipwreck had occurred. As Horatio thought about his daughters, words of comfort and hope filled his heart and mind. He wrote them down, and they have since become a well-beloved hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So Mr. Spafford learned that whatever happens to us, it is well with our souls if we know Christ. Even in that darkest night, we can praise God. Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? But the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. Heavenly Father, it's a bit scary to ask you for this kind of faith, knowing what it might take for us to get there. But Lord, we believe that you love us and that you only have our ultimate good in mind. We don't know what's good for us. We really don't. Help us to put ourselves in your hands, to surrender everything to you, to be willing to praise you even when things are hard, to see, Lord, with our eyes of faith, that you are working out your plan for the world and your plan for each one of us and that we can trust you. Help us to see in the dark, Lord, the way you enabled Habakkuk to do and Mr. Spafford and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and Job and Jesus. Make us more like Jesus, Lord. Amen. Amen.